Welcome back to season two of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Hollock, a pioneer in vitamin D science. He spent a lifetime researching and exploring what he believes are the vitamin's potential life-changing benefits. As a graduate student, Michael was the first to identify the circulating form of vitamin D in our blood, which doctors now use to measure our vitamin D levels. And he went on to isolate and identify the active form of vitamin D, known as 1,2,5-dihydroxyvitamin D3. Michael argues that across the world, guidelines for the amount of vitamin D we need are simply too low, and that many of us, even those of us living in a hot climate, will not be able to get enough of the vitamin we need from sunlight alone. He contends that not only do we need vitamin D for bone health, we also need it for many other critical functions too. Without enough of it, Michael says our immune system can't operate effectively, and that a lack of vitamin D is linked to a wide range of other health conditions, from heart disease and depression to autoimmune illnesses and cancer. In this interview, Michael discusses why he believes vitamin D is so essential and reveals the levels he thinks we all need to take for optimal health. But before we get to Michael's interview, if you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more, you can sign up to my Substack account, which is liztucker.substack.com. Go to my website to sign up for the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. And if you would like to financially support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it as a huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this pod. Even a small amount a month makes a huge difference. And you can provide support at patreon.com slash what your GP doesn't tell you or via my website, which as I mentioned earlier, is whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. And now back to the interview with Michael. Dr. Michael F. Hollick is Professor of Medicine, Physiology and Biophysics. He's the Director of the General Clinical Research Unit, Director of the Bone Health Care Clinic and Director of the Heliotherapy, Light and Skin Research Centre at Boston University Medical Centre. Michael and I started off our conversation discussing when doctors first realised that a lack of vitamin D could have very serious consequences for our health. Here's the interview. So, Michael, thank you very much indeed for joining the podcast today. My pleasure. We know that when we don't get enough vitamin D, problems can develop. I think it was originally suggested back in 1822 that a lack of sunlight could cause a bone disease known as rickets. Yeah. If you go back in history, in the 1600s, children living in Glasgow, Scotland, where coal was being burned heavily, and so they had the pall of pollution. And because living so far north and living in very close quarters where the buildings were in close proximity, the children were never exposed to any sunlight, and they developed rickets. And it was estimated by the turn of the 19th century that probably 80 to 90 percent of children in northern Europe, as well as even in northern United States, had evidence for rickets. And Michael, can you explain exactly what rickets is? So rickets is a bone disease which causes bowing or kind of knocked knees in children. And it also causes growth retardation. When children are starting to walk, 
gravity is pushing down. They have hardly any mineral in their bones, which is why the bones either bow out or, or turn inward. And then the other point is that often the wrists are wider at the joints. And the reason is that vitamin D plays a critical role in the maturation of the cells that produce the collagen. And if they don't have vitamin D around, they become very haphazard. And as a result, they grow outward. And that that's the classic reason for why they have what's called a rachitic rosary. So at the costochondral junctions of the rib cage, they're kind of bulging out and around the wrists. All of those are classic signs for rickets. But although rickets is first sort of diagnosed in the 19th century, it's another 100 years before we start treating it. Correct. I mean, it's really remarkable. Like you said, 1822 is Dr. Sunil Deke. And it turns out that he was a physician scientist and he realized something. And that is that children lived in Warsaw had a high incidence of rickets. But children living in the rural areas outside of Warsaw on the farms, they didn't. And so he made the observation in 1822 was strong and obvious, the influence of sun on preventing rickets. It was Palm in 1890s that started to appreciate what Snedeke had said. And he also made another interesting observation, which is that living in London compared to living in India, which is an incredibly poor country, children in London were at higher risk of having rickets than very, very poor third world countries. And so he concluded the same thing, recommended sunbathing as a prevention for rickets. And then finally, it was Hessen Unger, 1921, took some children, put them on a roof of a New York City hospital and demonstrated marked improvement in the x-ray mineralization and basically curing rickets. But now evidence suggests that clearly vitamin D important for skeletal diseases, but from a range of illnesses, from MS, infections, blood pressure, and even cancers. Correct. And so we know that essentially every tissue and cell in your body has a vitamin D receptor. And so Mother Nature wouldn't put them there if they weren't having a biologic effect. So we and many others had shown that if you grew prostate cancer cells or colon cancer cells or breast cancer cells that have a vitamin D receptor, and you add the active form 125-dihydroxy vitamin D, you inhibited the cancer growth and they began to mature. And so that was kind of the introduction to the concept that vitamin D may be playing a role in reducing risk for deadly cancers. But we also realized that um, your blood vessels have vitamin D receptor, and there's good evidence that vitamin D can help to maintain blood pressure, keeping a little bit lower by causing an effect on the vascular system. Your heart has a vitamin D receptor. We think that it also plays a role. And it turns out that the cells that lay down the cholesterol plaque for atherosclerosis that 125-dihydroxy vitamin D in culture prevents that the brain has a vitamin D receptor. And there's good evidence, association studies, that depression and neurocognitive dysfunction, Alzheimer's disease, have been related to vitamin D deficiency. And finally, it turns out that the immune cells have a vitamin D receptor. We now know that children living in northern latitudes are more likely to get type 1 diabetes. 
So there's a lot of evidence linking vitamin D with immune function. And in fact, the recent observation from the vital study were 25,000 adults getting 2,000 units of vitamin D a day, followed for more than five years, reduced risk of autoimmune disorders like psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis by 22%. Of course, the problem is when one looks at a lot of these studies, what the critics would say is a lot of them are correlation, not necessarily causation. Right. The vital study did find 25% reduced risk of dying of colorectal cancer. That's pretty impressive. And now the vital study is saying that 22% reduced risk of autoimmune disorders. The dusty new problem for those of us living in the northern hemisphere, that actually for a large part of the year, it's just not possible for us to get enough vitamin D from the sun. Correct. We shared many years ago, because I wanted to know what time of day, season, latitude, degree of skin pigmentation had on vitamin D production. And so we showed that if you live in Boston, for example, you can't make essentially any vitamin D from November until next March. And if you live in Edmonton, Canada, it's from about end of September until end of April, six months of the year. We did a, a study in northern Norway and showed exactly the same thing. It has to do with the zenith angle of the sun. But what's really remarkable is that we also did a study in Panama, done studies in India. If you get out early in the morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, with the sun shining brightly at the equator, you make no vitamin D. It's only between about 10 a.m. until 3 p.m., 2 to 3 p.m. That's the maximum time that you're making vitamin D. If you're not out there around 9, beginning at around 9 o'clock, but 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock, you can't make any vitamin D. And of course, for so long, particularly people who are very fair like me, we've been told to stay out of the sun. And so whenever I do go out in the sun, I've got factor 50 plastered on me. So my chance of getting vitamin D from the sun is going to be very reduced. SPF of 50 applied properly is reduces your ability by 99%. And so even the British Dermatology Society does recommend some sensible sun exposure. And there was a very nice study done by UK docs, and they showed that very light-skinned people like you, when exposed to sunlight, simulated sunlight in a laboratory, it's true that it, it does you know, make vitamin D and it will damage your skin. But what they also showed very nicely, after about six weeks, they could not show any additional DNA damage. And so we think that the reason is that Mother Nature designed us, right, to be exposed to sunlight, and that if you are damaging your DNA, you repair it. And so we always recommend sensible sun exposure. Definitely protect your face. It's the most sun exposed, most sun damaged. But arms, legs, abdomen, and back is not an issue. It does not really significant increase risk for non-melanoma skin cancer. And just an FYI, is that, you know, everybody worries about melanoma because it's the most deadly form. Most melanomas occur on the least sun-exposed areas, and occupational sun exposure decreases your risk for melanoma. So, Michael, what's your recommendation then for what's an appropriate level of sun exposure? Well, that's the problem, right? Time of day, season, latitude, degree of skin pigmentation. So there's only one thing to do. We developed an app. And so you can go to dminder, D-M-I-N-D-E-R dot I-N-F-O. It's free. 
on your Android and on your iPhone. It'll tell you anywhere on this planet when you could begin making vitamin D, how much vitamin D you can make. It takes into account your skin pigmentation, and it warns you to get out of the sun so you don't get a sunburn because you can't figure it out. I mean, if you know, for example, that you're going to go outside in June, full sun, and you're going to get a mild pinkness to your skin 24 hours later, it's called a minimal erythemal dose. We recommend to be out there for about 50% of that time. Well, I've been sunburnt in London in October, which people didn't believe me till the next day, but it was but it was true. Right. And it also turns out that even though it's UVB that makes vitamin D and is most damaging and causing um, sunburn, UVA will do the same. And so as you're going into fall, even in the UK, you're getting blasted by UVA radiation, and that can definitely cause a sunburn. And I think one of the complications is, generally speaking, governmental recommendations for the levels of vitamin D we should take seem to be predicated on preventing us getting rickets, whereas a lot of the neurologists I talk to and other groups actually privately will take much higher doses. But they tell me I can't recommend that to my patients because it's not in the government guidelines. Correct. And so the bottom line has been that your 25-hydroxy vitamin D should be between 25 and 37 um, nanomoles per liter. But the data, in my opinion, show very clearly, and the Institute of Medicine concluded the same, at a minimum, it should be 50 nanomoles per liter. If you look at all the studies, there was a study done in Germany of 675 healthy German adults that died in an accident, and they took a piece of their bone and they got their blood. And they related their blood level of 25-hydroxy-D to evidence of vitamin D deficiency osteomalacia, right, the counterpart of rickets in children. And they showed that to guarantee no vitamin D deficiency in your bones, that you needed to have a blood level of 75 nanomoles per liter or 30 nanograms per ml. And that's why the Endocrine Society Practice Guidelines recommends that. So for all of my patients, I've always had them taking minimum 1,500 to 2,000 units of vitamin D a day. That will get your blood level in the range of about 30. And that many of my patients were on 3,000 to 5,000 units a day. Their levels then are about 40 to 60 nanograms per ml. And that's, in my opinion, the ideal range. I personally take 6,000 I use daily. My blood level is in the range of about 170 to 180 nanomoles per liter. And these are international units? Correct. These are international units. And anybody can go to their GP and ask to get their vitamin D level measured so they know what their baseline is before they start taking something. Bottom line is we do not recommend getting a blood level. And the reason is, A, it's expensive. And B, depending upon who's doing it, may not be reliable. We know from our work and others that if you take a 1,000 units a day, your blood level will be in the range of about 25 to 30 nanograms per ml. But 1,500 to 2,000 units a day will get you above that. But if you are obese with a BMI of greater than 30, it dilutes in your body fat. And as a result, you need to take more. And the data from the Canadian study showed two to three times more in order to satisfy that requirement. 
And you've suggested that there's an unrecognised epidemic of vitamin D deficiency in the over 50s, which has led to people being wrongly diagnosed with a range of illness such as fibromyalgia, depression, and even in one case, ALS, or as it's known in the UK, motor neuron disease. Right. So there are two pieces to this puzzle. The first is that it is true and studies have shown, association studies, if you're really very significantly vitamin D deficient, higher risk of depression, neurocognitive dysfunction. But the ALS story is a different story. If you're severely vitamin D deficient, it can cause motor neuron disease that looks like ALS. It was the physician realizing the patient was vitamin D deficient and had this motor neuron disorder. So it's sort of that mimics the symptoms of ALS. Exactly. And so when the vitamin D deficiency was corrected, so too were those neuromuscular dysfunction. And you were suggesting the vitamin D deficiency may actually be increasing. So in my opinion, and based on all the literature, right, depending upon where you have that numbers, whether it should be 50 nanomoles per liter or 75 nanomoles per liter, At 50 nanomoles per liter, we estimate 40% of the world's population is less than 50 nanomoles per liter, and 60% is less than 75 nanomoles per liter. And we think that there's a hierarchy for vitamin D in the sense that lower blood level at around 50 nanomoles per liter probably will help to maintain your calcium metabolism. But you need to be above 75 nanomoles per liter or 30 nanograms per ml to have the function in your immune cells and other cells in the body. We did a study several years ago and we showed healthy adults that were vitamin D deficient or insufficient and gave them either 600, 4,000, or 10,000 units a day for half a year. And what we did was we did expression analysis to see how many genes were being influenced uh, at the beginning of the trial and at the end of the trial. And what's remarkable is that even on 600 units a day, right, which is not adequate for maximum bone health, still about two to 300 genes were being influenced. On 4,000 units a day, about 300. But on 10,000 units a day, over 12 hundred genes in your immune system were being influenced, and we did not see any toxicity. So we think that vitamin D is is much safer than we were all taught, because we were taught there was a fat-soluble vitamin, highly toxic, especially to infants, and it turns out none of that's correct. And the recommendation that I have is the Endocrine Society Practice Guidelines, which make recommendations to physicians around the world. Uh, especially endocrinologists. And I chaired that committee, and all of the members of the committee were experts in vitamin D, pediatric, adult, geriatric, vitamin D. And we recommended the following. For infants, 400 to 1,000 units a day. Children, 600 to 1,000 units a day. And adults, 1,500 to 2,000 units a day. And if you're obese, BMI of greater than 30, you need to take two to three times more. And can I ask, do you have any 
financial interests in vitamin D? What are your commercial interests in the area? Right. I am a consultant for Biogena and basically get very little compensation. I have a grant from Carbogen Amcus where we've shown very nicely that 25-hydroxy vitamin D is very effective in raising your blood levels. I also am a consultant for Soleus. It's a company that's developing a light box for people to actually walk in and to throw, to turn on for a couple of minutes so you can make your vitamin D. It's available now in Canada. It's been approved by Canada Health. We have a study underway here in the United States in the Boston University School of Medicine. So those are the, are the major ones. And then I, I'm on the Speakers Bureau for Sanofi and several other companies. Thanks for clarifying that. You mentioned at the start the fact that there are vitamin D receptors in cells across the body. What's the potential mechanism for vitamin D if it does in terms of reducing the risk of cancers such as colon, breast, and a number of other cancers? What we think is happening is that the cell has the capacity to activate vitamin D. And if the cell is starting to go nuts and become malignant, it has a couple of choices. 125D can try to help prevent that from happening. Or if it becomes malignant, we know that the active form of vitamin D causes apoptosis, which means it causes the cell to start to die. So we think that that's the major reason why there's these association studies suggesting that improvement in vitamin D status can reduce risk of many deadly cancers. And Dr. Grant has been, you know, in the forefront of demonstrating this. So basically, vitamin D is causing the cancerous cells to die. Correct. That's what we think, because all of the work that's done in cultured cells suggests that, that it induces genes for apoptosis, for cell death. It'll also take leukemic cells and help make them look normal again. They begin to mature. So there's a variety of mechanisms that vitamin D has. And one of the other ones, which is interesting, is that if the cancer does start to grow, it needs new nutrition and it needs more blood vessels. And what vitamin D does through its active form is shut that down. But so far with research, we're still looking at correlation, not causation, although there are theories about what that causation might be. Correct. I mean, cancers take usually a while to develop. And even the vital study, Dr. Manson said that, yeah, we did five years. We didn't see any reduced risk of developing cancer. But sometimes these cancers take a longer period of time. But what they did find, which I think is remarkable, a 25% statistically significant reduced risk of dying from the cancer. So for those who say that the problem is many of the studies are not randomized controlled trials, and that's a big weakness, what's your response? And herein lies the problem with most of the studies these days, because everybody agrees that you can't have a vitamin D deficient person remain vitamin D deficient. So as a result, they always have the control group getting vitamin D. So the vital study, for example, they were permitted, all of the ones in the control group, 800 units of vitamin D a day. But here's the problem. Manufacturers put in 20 up to 50% more vitamin D in the pill to maintain shelf life. So it could be for the vital study, for example, that they were comparing 1,200 units a day versus 2,000 units a day. 
And that could be one of the explanations for why so few studies are beginning to show any benefit, because you're already giving vitamin D to the control group. As an outsider, one of the issues, it seems to me, with the studies are very different levels of vitamin D are sometimes measured. And following your argument that actually the very low levels that are sometimes recommended are not enough to see the significant benefits. If the studies are done at these lower levels, then you're not potentially going to get the benefits. Correct. Now, Michael, one of the points that sceptics of vitamin D have raised is a genetic study of fractures in over half a million people. This found that there was no effect of vitamin D or milk drinking on the risk of a bone break. And that when you factor in poor quality studies, this shows there's not actually an effect on preventing either fractures or falls. And indeed, that the overuse of vitamin D supplements has been linked in several trials to increased falls and fractures. So I'm familiar with this. So it turns out that studies that have used physiologic doses of vitamin D have not ever demonstrated, in my opinion, increased falls. In fact, we did a study in a nursing home, and we took vitamin D deficient elders, and we gave them 400 and 600 units a day. Those that raised their blood level of 25-hydroxy-D reduced risk of falling by 72%. And we followed them. We followed each of the individuals, unlike a lot of the studies where they simply send it out to them, and then they ask them to write it down as to whether you, you fell or not. There was one study that was done by a Swiss group where what they did was that they advertised for their study. And they said, if you had fallen in the past year, you're welcome to be part of the study. And so a lot of people signed up. Well, the problem is if 100% of them fell the year before and now less than 100% fell the next year, you have to wonder whether or not you were still having a benefit, right? And then other studies have shown that if you give like 500,000 units of vitamin D, this huge dose, that it increased risk of fractures and falls. And my argument is that often patients that are vitamin D deficient, if they have osteomalacia, they have aches and pains in their bones and muscles. They don't want to move. But when you give them vitamin D, they just feel better. They're more robust and they're now beginning to be more active. And as a result, they're falling more likely. I suppose one of the issues once looking at these associative studies, and we can see that there appears to be a link with vitamin D and various positive outcomes for health. If I've got higher levels of vitamin D, it could also be if I'm fitter, therefore I'm outside more, I'm walking more, I'm jogging, I'm doing more sport, I'm perhaps more social, I'm going out and seeing people. And those could all be factors that might muddy that data. Yeah. I mean, there's no question about that. I gave a talk at um, a family doctor's conference and the president came up to me and she said to me that I had given her back her life. And I said, what do you mean? And she said that my patients had all been complaining to me in the wintertime. I have aches and pains in my bones and muscles. I'm fatigued. And so she had concluded that she had the same and that she was just overworked. And then she realized that, in fact, her patients were telling her, but Dr. Hollick said in his New England Journal article that that could be caused by vitamin D deficiency. And sure enough, she took vitamin D and she said dramatic improvement in how she felt. And so I think that it's true that younger people may be more active, but in my opinion, 
the common denominator has been vitamin D deficiency, increases risk for muscle weakness, especially very low levels. I mean, we did a study in a poor gentleman that had a very severe vitamin D sensitivity problem. He could not get up from a sitting to standing position. He had such severe muscle weakness and severe bone pain. But I'm just thinking, for example, if I go for a walk for at least half an hour a day, every day, which would be good for heart health, all sorts of things, that would probably also increase my vitamin D levels. It can, if you're not wearing sun protection completely. Yes, it will definitely. One disease which does seem to show a particularly strong association is multiple sclerosis. In countries with low levels of vitamin D, there does seem to be higher levels of MS. So particularly countries in the Northern Hemisphere, apart from areas of Scandinavia where they have a very high level of oily fish in their diet. What do we know about the connection between vitamin D and MS? We know that if you live above Atlanta, Georgia, about 35 degrees latitude, for the first 10 years of your life, you have 100% increased risk of developing MS for the rest of your life, no matter where you live on this planet. There was a study done at Harvard that showed that women that had the highest intake of vitamin D, over 400 units a day, this was like 20 years ago, reduced risk of developing MS by more than 40%. A similar study was done for rheumatoid arthritis in Iowa, and they made the same observation. And just another point about autoimmune disorders, there was a study done in Finland because they worried in Finland about vitamin D deficiency, and it was shown if infants for the first year of life receive 2,000 units of vitamin D a day and follow them for 31 years, it reduced their risk of getting type 1 diabetes by 88%. The experts then came in and said, wait a minute, you can't give infants 2,000 units a day, that's toxic. So then they decrease it to 1,000 and then down to 400. And the incidence of type 1 diabetes in Finland is on the rise. If you raise your blood level of 25-hydroxy vitamin D above 30 nanograms per ml, the immune cells can now activate vitamin D. They can regulate B lymphocyte activity by modulating immunoglobulin synthesis and reducing the production of autoimmune uh, antibodies, reducing risk for rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, and the list goes on. Michael, there was this idea, I think, that perhaps some people had a predisposition for MS and that the bodies might get enough vitamin D, but simply weren't able to process it effectively. But I think one of the studies that suggests that's not true is research done looking at MS data on women in Iran pre and post the Cultural Revolution which suggests a lack of vitamin D could be linked to development of the disease. Can you explain a little bit about what that study showed? Yes, if they weren't getting vitamin D supplementation, they wear clothing to completely prevent any of their skin from being exposed to sunlight. Extremely high risk of vitamin D deficiency. So the argument is that prior to the Iranian Cultural Revolution, women didn't have to cover up their bodies. But after the revolution, MS rates go up over eight times. And the authors of the study suggested that this is largely because women then had to cover up their bodies so their skin could no longer absorb vitamin D from the sun. Correct. There's a lot of data out there to show that vitamin D deficiency 
increases risk for MS. And there's a study done by Dr. Carimbra, who I met in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He's giving massive doses of vitamin D to MS patients. I have about four patients like his in my clinic that I was giving very high doses, and I was able to control their MS. And so we think that very, very high doses, but very carefully watched. The ones that I've had, the ones that Dr. Karimba has had, all making the same observation. These super high doses, like 40, 50,000 units a day, can have a dramatic effect on helping to either not have the disease progress or even to have it begin to decline in terms of its activity. So it seems to me with Dr. Kumbra's work, what we really need, some published trials, correct, which we don't have yet. But the problem is that I don't think there ever can be a controlled trial. We know that once these autoimmune diseases develop, they're very difficult to treat. So shouldn't there be more focus then on preventing them developing at all? And if we appear to have evidence that vitamin D, certainly for MS and potentially other autoimmune disease too is protective. Why aren't we recommending higher levels of vitamin D? That's because of this culture that's out there saying that vitamin D is potentially toxic. And we know that that's just not true. And that's why for me, uh, when I give my presentations, is I say, you need vitamin D from birth until death, because it can reduce risk of many chronic illnesses. It'll make you feel better. And as a result, I think it's a good recommendation. And you do need to be on adequate calcium. And often, having adequate calcium, you'll have stronger bones. As I mentioned earlier, a number of neurologists, particularly those with an interest in MS, tell me they take 5,000 units a day. But they said to me, but we can't tell our patients this. Right. But going back to this issue of calcium, what I find puzzling is there's parts of the world where people have very low levels of calcium in the diet, particularly if you look at parts of Asia, they don't tend to suffer high levels of osteoporosis. In the US, where people have the most calcium in the diet, they have the highest levels of osteoporosis. So why does that happen? It turns out that calcium obviously is very important for your skeleton. We know, for example, in Africa, that children with rickets exposed to a lot of sunlight is due to severe calcium deficiency. They see the same in Bangladesh, for example. But when you mean low calcium, you're not talking about very, very low calciums. You're talking about calcium in the range of probably 400 to 600 milligrams a day, as opposed to 1,000 milligrams a day in the United States. We know that your activity makes a difference. We know, because you had said you'd like to walk, and you were giving some examples of the benefits. Well, one of the additional benefits is that it helps to maintain both hip and spine bone density. It's the pounding on the pavement that's translated to your hip and spine. So a lot of these other countries, these people are much more active. And as a result, that even though that they have lower calcium intake, is that they're able to help maintain their bone mass. And in the United States, even though you have adequate calcium intake, if you're vitamin D deficient, you're not utilizing that calcium. So it's kind of a catch-22. Those in Asia, for example, are more likely eating sun-dried mushrooms, good source of vitamin D. If they're out there, all that's outside all the time, they're making adequate vitamin D. And so the body is very clever, is that if you have low calcium intake, but adequate vitamin D, 
you increase the active form of vitamin D being produced in the kidneys, which goes to the intestine to tell the intestine, okay, increase the efficiency of absorption. Normally, if you're vitamin D sufficient, you absorb 30 to 40% of your dietary calcium. If you're vitamin D insufficient, only about 10 to 15% is being absorbed. So how much calcium should we all be drinking as adults? Right. So I tell my patients that I think 1,000 milligrams a day, as recommended by the Institute of Medicine, is quite reasonable. You don't want to take it all at once, because if you do, you can't as efficiently absorb it. We prefer that you break it up. Personally, I think dietary calcium is much better. The major dietary source, of course, is dairy. And now, of course, they have various types of milks, oat milk and almond milk, where they're adding calcium carbonate to it as a source of calcium. But to me, the best source is dairy. I drink three glasses every day. Because there's been speculation about a link between breast cancer and dairy, particularly for postmenopausal women, that I think has been a worry. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there are other studies that have shown that that's just not true. So I think that that's still, in my opinion, a very debatable issue, just like hormone replacement therapy, right? I mean, we've been taught, don't go on hormones because it increases risk of breast cancer by 25%, right? That's the Women's Health Initiative. So I tell my students, okay, read the paper. What does that really mean? What it means is per 10,000 women on estrogen and progestin versus placebo, that 38 women on estrogen develop breast cancer per 10,000. 30 women without taking estrogen develop breast cancer. The difference was eight. And even though 38 and and 30, right, it's a 25% difference. But read the paper even more carefully. And they showed women with no uterus who were only taking estrogen and not progestin had no increased risk for breast cancer. So what does that tell us? It tells me that it's the high dose of progestin, maybe with the estrogen, that is the offender. Because if women with no uterus only taking estrogen didn't increase risk of breast cancer, there has to be another reason, which is the combination. And so now the dose that they used, which was 0.625 of Premarin and 5 milligrams of the progestin, um, I give my patients now 0.3 of the estrogen-like compound and only 1.5 milligrams of the progestin, medroxyprogesterone. See, maybe 500 to 1,000 postmenopausal women, if they don't have a history of breast cancer, family history of breast cancer, I'm pretty aggressive in using hormone replacement therapy because they feel better, uh, don't have hot flashes, and many of the other consequences of being menopausal and not on hormone replacement therapy. Linked to that, one of the latest suggestions has been the use of vitamin D for women with postmenopausal breast cancer who are taking Arimidex, who often complain of muscle aches and joint pain. The dose was 7,000 international units a day. I've had plenty of breast cancer patients in my clinic on these anti-estrogen medications, and I make sure that their blood levels of 25-hydroxy-D are in the range of 40 to 60 nanograms per ml, and I've never had that experience. But 7,000 units a day would probably be more than you would be giving to your patients. Twice as much. I'm, I'm not familiar with the study particularly, yeah. but 
I always tell my students, read these studies carefully. Don't just read the abstract because it's basically so true. the abstract yeah, is, is what the authors want you to believe. It's an advertisement basically for their paper. And so it's important to deeply read into these to see what's happening. Because we do know, by the way, that patients who are severely vitamin D deficient and you give them vitamin D, they can develop aches and pains in the bones and muscles initially. And we don't understand why. It seems to have some effect on trying to remineralize the bone. And I've seen it and, and can't explain it. So, Michael, what do we need to do then for the future with vitamin D to maximize its potential? Personally, I think the most important thing for the UK and and the rest of the world, you've got to begin to fortify foods. You cannot get enough from sunlight. You cannot get enough from your diet. Even India now, a country that you would think is sunny all the time, Right. They realize that vitamin D deficiency is a major health problem. And as a result, the government now permits the fortification not only of dairy, of milk, with twice the amount that is available in the United States, but because, you know, they're very poor population and they can't afford milk, they decided to put it in cooking oil. And that's very clever. Now, you may ask the question, well, if you put in cooking oil and you're cooking your food, are you destroying the vitamin D? And the answer is no. Vitamin D is incredibly stable to heat. But couldn't we all just take a vitamin D supplement? Personally, that's my recommendation for all my patients. But there's some places that it's expensive. And right now, many countries in South America and, of course, in Europe, right, you need a prescription to get your vitamin D. You can't just go to your drugstore and purchase it. You can buy it online quite easily. Yes, you can. The problem with that, in my opinion, is you have to be careful. Because I had one case that we published in the New England Journal of Medicine, where he went online and he said it was 2,000 units in two teaspoons. And I had been recommending 2,000 units a day. And he became severely intoxicated. And the reason was the company forgot to dilute it. He was taking a million units a day for over a year. You can also buy vitamin D over the counter in the UK but at much lower doses. Right. But in my opinion, any amount is good. Well, Michael, thank you so much for talking. Absolutely fascinating. My pleasure. Uh, I'll just leave you with one more thought, which is we have good evidence that vitamin D deficiency in pregnancy increases risk for preeclampsia, the most serious complication of pregnancy. It reduces risk of requiring a C-section because vitamin D is very important for muscle functioning during birthing, and it reduces risk for premature birthing. And then we also know that in utero, if the fetus is recognizing a higher blood level in the mom, after birth, they have less likelihood of having wheezing disorders and asthma. There is no downside to increasing your vitamin D intake into those levels that we've talked about. If studies eventually show that, in fact, there is additional benefits, you know, you're on top right away, right? Rather than have lost all that time being vitamin D deficient and potentially markedly increasing risk for chronic illnesses later in life. Many thanks, Michael. Great talking to you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. Many thanks for listening. And a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter 
at Liz C. Tucker and sign up to the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. The podcast will be back after the Christmas break on Tuesday the 17th of January. So in the meantime, I hope you have a very happy Christmas and New Year. Bye for now. <laughs>